Happy Lord's Day. Happy Lord's Day. Is it out? Test, test, test. It's off. Is it off? It's off. It's off. It's off. All right. Wait, sorry. That's me, that's me, that's me. It's me, dude. I had it off. I turned it off. Sorry, my fault. You guys want to hear me sing, so. Um, that's for your service. That's me serving you. Um, my bad. Sorry about that. Happy Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. We continue to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Some of you are going through a really hard season of life and a dark season of life. Others of you are going through a brighter season of life. Either way, Christians gather every Sunday on the Lord's Day to celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead. So there is light and there is hope for you. And there's hope for your life because Christ has risen. And Christians all over the world gather to remember that this morning. And so we do that again this morning. So thank you for being here as we meditate on God's Word. My name is PJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church. and one of the members. And um, it's a joy to bring you God's Word this morning. And so, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 we're going to look at verse 18 of chapter 4, verse 1, as we continue our series in the book of Colossians, as we think about what does it look like to continue in Christ in the midst of false teaching, in the midst of Christ-displacing ideas? What does it mean to truly live the full life in Christ, the fulfilled life in Christ? Hear God's word from Colossians chapter 3. Verse 18, if you, if you don't have a Bible, it's page 1045 in the hardcover Bible in front of you. You can go there, and the three is the big number. That's the chapter number, chapter three, and chapter four, verse one. And then verse numbers are the small numbers. Hear God's word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart, as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father, we've prayed that you'd break the bread of life to us, and so we are coming to you now, Lord. You, you told us already, um, we lift our eyes to the mountain. Where does our help come from? Where can we get help to read your word and meditate on your word? Where can children get help? Where can parents get help? Where can I get help now to meditate on your word and preach your word well? Lord, we, our help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. It doesn't come from spiritual gifts. It doesn't come from preparation, finally. It doesn't come from peer pressure. It comes ultimately from you. So, Lord, help us. 
to meditate on this word and to see glorious things here in your word. Free us from the bondage and fetters and chains and lies that hold us back from fully flourishing in Christ, in our homes, in our households, and in the workplaces. Give us your strength now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The word of Christ has been written on your heart. If you're a Christian, God has personally wrote his, has written his law on your heart. Christ preaches the word to you when it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We talked about this two weeks ago. The word of Christ dwells in you richly because Christ is the one who preaches it. Christ preaches the word to you through other people, through you reading the Bible, through the spirit who lives within you, through Christ indwelling in you, through reminding you of what you already know. Christ Jesus preaches to you, to your ears, so that you would hear the word of Christ because faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And it starts to show up in your life. This word guides wives, it guides husbands, it guides children, it guides fathers and mothers and parents, it guides slaves and masters, employers and employees. This word is fleshed out and applies to all of our lives. And this is really the promise of God. So let's, do, let's go back to the Old Testament and we'll go into the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have two promises given to us before Christ came that we ought to thank God every day for. There's the twin promises of the new covenant, and then we have the twin commands of the new covenant, which we get one of them here in Colossians chapter 3. So let's look at the first, the twin promises of the new covenant that was promised 400 and 500 years before, 500 and 600 years before Christ came through the prophet Jeremiah and through the prophet Ezekiel. So Israel was exiled out of the land, just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Israel was kicked out of the land, Israel and Judah, because they disobeyed the old covenant that God gave to to Israel through Moses. So they're kicked out of the land and God promises them that he will gather Israel back under a new covenant, a new Israelic covenant. And there's two, there's more places of them. Let me read two prominent places where there's a promise of a new covenant because this defines your lives if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. Um, this can define your life, and I want to welcome you to let this define your life. So Ezekiel 36 and then Jeremiah 31. You can turn there if you're fast enough, but if not, you can just listen. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Here's the first new covenant promise. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here's the promise that I want you to focus on. There's already many promises there, but verse 27. I will put my spirit, God's saying, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So God will cause you to walk in his statutes. He will... Uh, be, and you will be careful. He will, he will cause you to carefully observe God's ordinances. And why or how? What did God say he'll put within you? His spirit. His spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in this way. So praise God that God has given you his Holy Spirit. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in Christ. If God does not, did not give you a spirit, you would be powerless to do what God calls you to do. Praise God that he promised you the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only new covenant promise. 
There's another promise that I would call the twin of this promise, and it's in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, when God says, I'm not going to give you the old Israeli covenant, I'm going to give you a new covenant, and here's what he says. But this is the covenant I will make with you, Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Praise God. And he will forgive us our sins and forget our sins. He will not count it against us. That's part of the new covenant blessing. But the, the part that I want to focus on here is he will take what and write it on your heart. He will take his what? His law, his teaching, his law covenant. God will take his law covenant, his own instruction, and he will write it on your heart. So there's two things God promises in the new covenant. First, and Ezekiel promises his what? His spirit to cause you to walk in his ways. And then he also promises that he will take his law and write it where? On your heart and cause you to know him. Those are the new covenant promises. Now, if you go to the New Testament here, we have the new covenant commands, the, the twin commands. Those are the twin promises. Now, here's the twin commands. Um, Notice in verse 18, let's just go through Colossians 3, your Bible's there. It says, wives, submit to your, your husbands. Uh, husbands, love your wives. Father, uh, children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly. And all of this flows out of the command of verse 16 and 17. So look at this command in verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what's the command in verse 16? Let the what? Word, word of Christ do what? Dwell. dwell in you richly. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, treat your slaves with justice and fairness. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in your household. There's the command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now go to Ephesians. Turn back a, a, a book or two books to Ephesians. Keep your finger in Colossians 3, but look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. What's the command here? Don't get drunk with wine. Which leads to reckless living. But here's the command. But what? Be filled by... By whom? Be filled by the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So what's the command here? Be filled by the Spirit. In one command, it's let the word of Christ what? Dwell richly in you. Here the command is be filled by the Spirit. What happens when the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly? It's the same thing as that happens when you're filled by the Spirit. Look at verse uh, 19. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks to always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same thing of Colossians 3. Read on in Ephesians 5. 22. Wives do what? Submit to your, Submit to your husbands. Verse 25. Husbands what? Love your wives. Ephesians 6. 1. Children, obey your parents. Uh, Ephesians 6. 4. Fathers, don't stir up your anger in your children. Uh, verse 5. Slaves. Obey your human masters. In verse 9, masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them. 
You have the same fruit, the same results, but a different head command. In Colossians 3, the head command is, let the word of Christ, what? Dwell richly in you. In Ephesians 5, what is the head command? Be filled by the Spirit. Twin commands with the same results. They're not exactly the same command, but they're twin commands. And these are founded upon the fact that hundreds of years before Christ came, God promised he would redeem his people. He would regather his Israel around Jesus Christ, the true Israel, to be his people. And he would give them his spirit and he would give them his word. And now God commands you, keep being filled by the spirit. Keep allowing Christ's preached word to dwell in you richly. And let it affect you as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as a child, as a slave, and as a master. Now before we get into this passage, go back to Colossians 3. Let me just give an invitation to you if you're not a Christian. God promises to give you power over sin. He promises to forgive you of your sin. He promises to change you, to help you become the husband you should be, and the wife you should be, and the child you should be, and the parent you should be, and the employee you should be, and the boss you should be. Our problem is that we're sinners. So if you're not a Christian and you forget everything else, please remember this. Your biggest problem is that you are a sinner and a rebel against God. And because of that, children, and all other friends here who are not Christian, because of that, you are damned and condemned to hell for your sins. We're all condemned. Not only that, we're slaves. We're in bondage to our sin. But God promises freedom. God promises forgiveness. God sent his son Jesus into the world to die for your sins and to rise from the dead so that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus and entrust yourself to Jesus, you actually unite to Jesus. You become one with Jesus. The way a husband and wife become one in that like that in marriage. You become one with Christ that all of that he has is for you and all that you have is for him. So all your sin is counted to him and you can be forgiven of all your sin in his death. And his righteousness and his power is given to you so that you can be, you can be reconciled to God, you can know God, enjoy God, and you can live with his power in this world. Doesn't mean you'll never sin, but you have the power to overcome sin and grow out of sin and to continually be cleansed from sin because God has forgiven you of your sins in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, here's a standing invitation from Jesus through my mouth to you sitting there. Repent from your sins and your goodness and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Entrust yourself to Jesus. Or as Paul says, call on the name of the Lord. Call on Jesus to save you. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. All right. Now let's dig into this passage here for us. What we have here in Colossians 3, verses 18 of chapter 4, verse 1, is the result of Christ's word dwelling in us. And it, all, it has to do with a key concept. And the concept is authority. Living with Christ under and in and with authority. Is authority a good thing, yes or no? Yes. Is authority a bad thing, yes or no? Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? Yes. 
Yes, it depends, yeah, right. Similarly, you have a similar issue with authority. It's a useful tool, it's a necessary tool actually in human society and in relationships, but it can be bad, it can be abused, it can be misused, it can be distorted, but it doesn't have to be. 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4 speaks about authority as a good thing. It says this, The God of Israel, the Rock of Israel, the God of Israel said, The Rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, rules, who rules in the fear of God, is a light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. What is it saying here? It's saying that when a, a person uses their authority and rules righteously, and they rule in the fear of God, people are blessed. People are blessed under good authority. People are unnecessarily burdened and oppressed by wrong uses, misuses, abuses of authority. So Paul starts here, going back now to Colossians 3, verses 18 through 4.1. He starts with those under authority, and then he addresses those with limited authority. Okay, so he starts wives, then husbands, children, then parents or fathers, slaves, and then masters. And maybe he did this to show that bad leadership or the abuse of authority is not a valid ex excuse to resist or resent or rebel against all authority. Maybe, I don't know, but that might be a, a possible reason why. So he's really going to say this. If you're under authority, he's going to say this. Submit to authority, if I could just summarize it. Submit to authority as a submission to the Lord Jesus. Submit to authority as you submit, as, as a submission to the Lord Jesus. So if you're good at submitting to earthly authorities, legitimate earthly authorities, you'll be good in positions of authority when God places you in authority um, because you're always a person under authority, even if you have authority. The best people, the people who use authority best are those who submit to God the most. The people who use authority the best are those who submit to God the most. Because God is the ultimate and absolute authority. Everyone else is a contingent authority, dependent and under God. So if you're under authority, the call is to submit to authority as, you're, as you submit to Christ. And if you, are, if you have authority, limited authority, the call to you is to exercise authority rightly as a display of the Lord Jesus. It is amazing in this passage. It's not amazing to us. If you've read the Bible, this is not an amazing passage to you. It's a normal passage. But in this day, in the first century, for Paul to address husbands and call them out, for him to call out fathers publicly and give them a demand that children can hear, did you hear that, Dad? You got our obligation from the Lord. For, for the husbands to be called out publicly in front of the wives. Husbands, love your wives. For masters to be called out publicly in the gathered assembly puts them in their place. This is a staggering and astounding passage in this time and in this culture that God would, that Paul would address and call them and hold them to account under God publicly. Why would God do that? Because good authority blesses everyone under that authority and bad authority, abusive authority, misused authority hurts people and those authorities must be called to account. All right, so we want to talk about, now remember, the book of Colossians is about living the full Christian life. And we were, we were in a lot of theory for a long time, right? Living the fulfilled Christian life. In, the, in Colossae, people are looking for the secret to a fulfilled Christian life. I need Jesus, but if I could get these other traditions, or the, if I could get this heavenly vision where I could see the temple of, in heaven and worship with angels, 
God in the, in the heavenly temple, then I'll really live the full Christian life. Or if I could really just go extreme, I mean, you Christians are wimps. I'm going to read my Bible 10 times a day. You guys only read it once a day. I'm going to fast when I don't have to fast, and I'm going to do everything to, to just be the most extreme and powerful Christian I can be. Then I'll really live the full Christian life. These ascetic practices which are not tied to Christ. They're disconnected from Christ. People trying to live the full life. Paul is about living the full life. But the full life is wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, you want to live the full life in Christ? Obey your parents. Fathers, you want to live the full life in the home? Then don't exasperate your children. Slaves and masters. So he's giving us what the full life looks like in practice. Not just on Sundays, but every day. So here's the main goal. And then we'll get through these three segments. The main goal is this. Let the indwelling of Christ's word transform your relational dynamics at home and at work. Let the indwelling of Christ's word transform, there's the functional word, transform your relational dynamics in home and at work. It's talking about fathers, mothers, and children, husbands, wives at home, slaves and, and masters, that's household, but it could also apply to work in our day. So in these relational dynamics, let, the, let Christ's indwelling word, the word that's written on your heart in the new covenant promise, let that word transform your work relationships, your home relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your listening to your parents. The relational dynamics must be informed by and overwhelmed by the glory of Christ Jesus and his word, the message of who he is. As king and lord and brother and savior, let that transform your relational dynamics more and more so that you continue to walk in Christ with your mindset on him all the way to the end, living the full Christian life. All right, so let's look at these three categories, marriage, parenting, and work, okay? Those would be the three kind of main headings, marriage, parenting, and work. First, let's look at marriage. We start with this question. Let's back up. If we're talking about husbands and wives... Um, our, our culture is confused on what a man is and what a woman is. So if you're a Christian, parents, you must teach your children. And children, you must learn the answer to this question now while you're a child. What makes a man a man and not a woman? And what makes a woman a woman and not a man? Is it long hair? Not according to the members of our church. <laughs> right? What makes a man a man and not a woman? What makes a woman a woman and not a man? Is it the way they dress? You need to know this. Because this understanding generally of, hum of men and women will inform marriage. And actually marriage informs this as well. They're not exactly the same, but there's a deep connection between the two. So let me give you our catechism answer, okay? Some of you guys should have in your Bible a Bethany Baptist Church catechism. Looks like this. It's, like, it's almost like a bulletin, and it has our uh, 75 questions or so to catechize your children. Questions 8 and 9 or. Yeah, it's what is God's design for manhood? The essence of mature masculinity is the benevolent responsibility to lead, provide, and protect, provide for and protect women and others in ways appropriate to a man's different relationships in order to fulfill humanity's God-given commission to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Okay? So men, benevolent responsibility, mature masculinity is a benevolent responsibility to lead, initiate, Provide for and protect women in the appropriate relationships to fulfill um, 
the God-given commission to humanity. And what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? What's God's design for womanhood? The essence of mature femininity is the freeing disposition to support and strengthen worthy leadership from men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships in order to fulfill humanity's God-given commission. I'll say that again. The essence of mature femininity is the freeing disposition to support and strengthen worthy leadership for men, if I could add another thing, and reject or redirect unworthy leadership from men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships in order to fulfill humanity's God-given commission. That, that's just, okay, so this is, notice the word submission is not here yet, right? And love, that's for husbands and wives. Women aren't to submit to all men. That's not what the passage says. That's not what manhood and womanhood is. Women, you do not submit to all men. It says wives submit to your husband and to your husband, not to all husbands, right? So, uh, but but the, the, the general disposition, the freeing disposition in femininity is to support and strengthen worthy leadership, to make men what they could not be without you. And for men, it's, to, it's the benevolent sense of responsibility, the burden, the responsibility to lead and initiate and provide for and protect women. All right. Now, this is going to be applied here to the marriage because the marriage, it gets even more specific than, than that generality. So look at verse 18. Wives, what's the command? Wives, what? Submit. Submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Submit, your, submit yourselves to your husband. Now, it says submit yourself, so be subject. Submit. Now, it doesn't say obey. Actually, from reading this passage, uh, for a BBC marriage, our marriage template, our wedding template, I'm going to change the word there. I think I already did change the word, but just in case I didn't, I think in the one I got from a previous church, it says obey, like you're covenanting to obey. Actually, submit is, is, the, is the word and not obey. Okay, so it's not saying obey your husbands. That's going to be uh, for children and parents. It says submit to your husbands. Be subject. Be willingly and personally choose to subject or subjugate your, your, your will or your mission. Subject your mission, submission, put your mission under your husband's mission, his objective, his direction. This is not a, I mean, I grew up with the joke in our, in our churches, the, the, the joke was, um, my husband's the head, but I'm the neck. And I could turn my husband's head wherever I want to turn it. Okay. Um, this is not that, right? It's not uh, coercing your husband as the head. Um, it says submit yourselves. So that's to say that this is not a harsh order intended to bring cringing subjugation, as one uh, commentator says. Rather, it's a call to make a deliberate decision to choose to act in a certain way. So submit your mission, put your husband's will above your will. Okay, your mission, you have a mission, you have objectives, your husband does, but you're a team, you're one. And you are to submit your mission to put your mission under your husband's mission. Okay, put his will above your own, as Tim Chester has said. Now it says here, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Why is it fitting in the Lord? It's not because wives are inferior to husbands. It's not because women are inferior to men. They are not. Equally human, equally dignified, equally made in God's image, equally worthy of respect and honor and rights. So it's not because wives are inferior to husbands. Paul doesn't say here, um, he doesn't tell us here exactly why it's fitting. He just says it's fitting in the Lord. Why should you know if it's how it's fitting in the Lord? What should be dwelling in you richly so you should know it fits in the Lord? What should be dwelling in you richly? The word of Christ, right? Verse 16, this is all flowing from verse 16. If the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, you would know that this is fitting in the Lord. But that's not helpful for me to just say that. 
If the word of Christ is dwelling in you, you should know Genesis 1 and 2 and God's creation of manhood and womanhood and the fall in Genesis 3 and how that distorted manhood and womanhood. And then you should know Ephesians 5 where it says, wives submit to your husbands as to, uh, uh, um, wives submit yourself to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And so you would know by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly that you're also reflecting the church's relationship with Christ and that great mystery. We're not going to get into that now because that's not here in Ephesians and Colossians. That's in Ephesians. Let me give five clarifications on submission before we move on. Submission does not mean five things. It does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Submission is not agreeing. It doesn't say agree with your husband. It says submit yourselves to your husband. One, um, one wife said, you know, it's helpful to ask myself the question, am I really submitting with my husband if I only submit when I agree with him? That's not submission if you're only submitting with your husband when you agree with him. You can disagree with your husband and still submit. Secondly, submission does not mean leaving your brain or your will at the altar. When I say put your husband's will above your own, I'm not saying erase your will. Don't have a will. Don't think anymore. No, it's not that. Submission is not thoughtlessness. Submission is not becoming a robot. Third, submission does not mean avoiding efforts to change your husband. Submission is not resignation. It's not quitting. Submission does not mean that the wife does not do anything. Thinking that, um, like, you know, as one, one of the wives, I, so I text a few wives to ask for help. Wives, what do you, what, what, give me some insight here on submitting to your husbands. Give me some of your thoughts. And one, one wife said, submission does not mean that the wife does not do anything, as if that would mean that she's leading um, and waits for her husband to do everything. It also does not mean that the wife cannot ask her husband questions, give her thoughts, and help hu her husband process a decision. Indeed, a wife ought to be the wife ought to be the husband's most valued opinion, most valued perspective. Doesn't mean always the, the the most right perspective. Number four, submission does not mean put putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. Submission is not is, submission is to Christ ultimately. Your husband's will is above yours in obedience to this passage, but never above Christ's. The only reason you're submitting your will to your husband is because you're submitting your will to Christ, right? So if your husband goes against Jesus, it's Jesus all day, every day. Reject or redirect your husband's unworthy leadership. And number five, submission does not mean acting out of slavish fear toward the husband or tolerating abuse. Submission to Christ means challenging and coming up under or, or, or getting out from abusive authority. Calling your husband and making sure your husband is accountable for wrong uses of authority before Christ. And Christ has a church to help hold your husband accountable. He has the government, law, law enforcement to help hold your husband accountable. Because no one, no authority, even law enforcement, even church, even pastors, even the congregation, no authority is ultimate but Christ's. So all must be held accountable. So here's John Piper's concluding definition of submission. And we went over this in the womanhood and manhood class. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's non-sinful leadership. I put non-sinful there. Her husband's non-sinful leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Submission is an inclination of the will to say yes to the husband's leadership and a disposition of the spirit to support his initiatives. One wife raised the challenge, how do I submit to my husband joyfully and not just as mere duty? 
How do I submit to my husband joyfully and not as mere duty? I'm like, man, far be it for me to start t saying how to do this and pontificate as a husband up here. So I'm going to give a safe, biblical, ear, easy answer, but it's, a, it's a, still a helpful answer. I would just go to James 1, 2 to 4, which says, Consider a great joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter various what? Trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its complete work so that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So if you're a wife and you're having a hard time joyfully submitting to your husband, I would say that's, that's a trial similar to joyfully counting trials joy. So it's a trial. So praise God for your endurance. Praise God that he's maturing and, um, and growing you through it. That he's growing you in discernment and wisdom of how to challenge and work with your husband. And praise God that he's giving you more of himself through the trial. I know that's not very specific, but that's, that's safe for me as a man and husband. So you could ask, we could ask more specifics and work through that as church family. The, the joy of being a, a wife here in submission, as, as one wife has said, is it's freeing to know that the burden of deciding and bearing the responsibility for failing is on the husband and not on me. Feel the freedom of not bearing the weight of a failed decision. It's not your fault. It's his. It's his. He has the burden and the responsibility and the accountability for his bad decisions. You're free to say what you think and not take the responsibility for the bad decision. One other wife said, it's hard, uh, it's hard but it's good for both of us. Submitting to my husband's decision was heart-wrenching, but his leadership grew, grew significantly, even though she didn't agree with the decision. My friendship with him grew, and trust in his leadership was strengthened, and we grew in ways we couldn't have otherwise. So let, let the indwelling of Christ's word transform your relational dynamic to submit to your husbands. What about husbands? Look at verse 19. Husbands what? What's the command of husbands? Love. Wives say it. What's the command of husbands? Love. love your wives. Yes, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Love, a self, so this is self-giving. Give of yourself. Sacrifice yourself. If the wife is to put her, your will above hers, husbands, according to Tim Chester, put your wife's preferences above yours. You have the decision at the, at the end of the day, but put her preferences above your preferences. Die to self-centeredness and find your interest and your joy in your wife's joy. I got to finish the sentence. In Jesus. Okay? Not, husband, don't find your joy in your wife's joy in idolatry. Because that would be helping her sin. That would be you sinning with your wife in sinning. Just like a wife submitting to her husband's sinful leadership. So husbands, don't put your wife's sinful preferences above your preferences. Don't put your joy in her joy in sin. Above, uh, don't, don't put your joy in that. Put your joy in your wife's joy in God. Be willing to die to yourself and sacrifice yourself so that your wife would be happy in Jesus. So that she would be holy in Jesus. Give yourself, make it your joy and your privilege to give yourself up for your wife's holy happiness. Richard Chin gives four, in his commentary on Colossians, he gives four um, tips on loving your wife. Value her as your equal. I love this one, and my wife loves this one because I'm not good at it. I need to grow in this. So I'm holding myself accountable here. Work to help your wife feel loved and cherished. 
work so that your wife feels love. If she's not feeling love from you, figure out why. And, fi and work and plan and execute a plan to grow in letting your wife feel loved and cherished. Third, make submission a joy because of your selflessness and your delight in her and your deference to her preferences. And fourthly, nourish your wife and work hard so that she flourishes spiritually, emotionally, physically, and relationally. Let's finish the verse here. Husbands, love your wives and don't be what? Bitter. Don't be bitter towards them. Why would a husband be bitter towards a wife? Husbands, have you ever felt bitterness towards your wife? Resentment? Nah. Never. Who's this verse for? Not us. Not BBC. Right? This is for some other church. This is a church at Colossae, right? Let's go to the historical context, right? Um, yeah. Yes, we struggle with, with this, right? Yeah, yes. We, we do struggle with bitterness and resentment. Why? Why, why might a husband struggle with bitterness and resentment towards his wife? There's a few reasons. I can't give them all. Uh, maybe due to a wife's failure when a wife disappoints his expectations. Or the, or the way a wife, this happens to me, the way a wife exposes and identifies my weaknesses and failures and shortcomings. I'm like, oh, you know. In my pride and arrogance and unteachability, I'm irritated and impatient and embittered that she's right and that I'm wrong. Husbands, don't, don't be bitter or resentful towards your wife. Now, the way that this bitterness comes out is in outbursts of anger, in resentment, in the silent treatment, in harsh words, in threats, in unkindnesses, in physical force or violence. In intimidation, abuse, let me just say very clearly, resentment, silent treatment, harsh words, threats, unkindness, physical force, and violence, intimidation, and abuse are unacceptable. They are forbidden. They are prohibited. They are evil. And you must war against it. And wives, you must hold your husbands accountable and help get help from others to hold your husbands accountable to not be bitter or harsh towards you. Richard Chin gives three tips here. He gives more, but I, I, I chose three. Three I liked uh, that I think are most helpful on, um, on not being harsh towards your wives. So how not to be harsh? Never demand that your wife submit to you. I like that. Never demand that your wife submit to you. Instruct her. Pray for her. Call her to it in humility and love, but don't demand. I think that's helpful. Secondly, never think in terms of disciplining your wife. Never think in terms of you disciplining your wife, like it's your responsibility to discipline your wife. It's your responsibility to discipline your children, not your wife. Disciple your wife, yes. Discipline your wife, no. And then thirdly... Um, just ask yourself this question. Is your wife afraid of you when you're angry? Does she feel unsafe or in danger? That should never, ever be the case. And if it is the case, brother, husband, get help. Even from us pastors. Get counsel. Talk to one of the pastors today. Text me. Text Ben. Text John. Text Peter. 
Text one of the men in the church, text accountability partners, get help. Get counsel from others if this is a problem. We won't look at you like you have three heads. We know you're a sinner, we're all sinners. But if this is a problem, get help, get accountability. All right, so always care and never deal harshly with your wives. Now this, if the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, you understand that you are to love Christ like Christ, or love your wives like Christ loved the church because you represent Christ. So let's move on here. So um, let me just say uh, application note, singles before we move on. Singles desiring marriage and then singles not desiring marriage or really all the other singles including those who desire marriage. So first singles desiring marriage. Ladies, continue to delight in trusting and submitting to Christ. That's how you're going to grow in preparing to submit to your husband. But let me say this to you ladies. Ladies, please, sisters, single sisters, don't open your heart to a man who doesn't show teachability and correctability before God and his people. So my plea to you, single sisters, is if they're not a member of a church, let them join a church first and see how he's held accountable by brothers and leaders at the church. Please, you'll save yourself a lot of heartache. And then singles, whether desiring marriage or not. Singles, even those um, before marriage, singles after marriage and bereavement, um, grow in expressing and encouraging biblical manhood and womanhood in others generally. It would help all Christians. All of us would be helped by spending time learning biblical manhood and womanhood. I think I emailed out the class. You guys can look at that class. There's over nine hours there of teaching that we did as a church family a year or two ago. You can look at that and work through that together. Okay. So let the indwelling of Christ's, words, Christ's word transform your relational dynamics as a wife and as a husband, as a single person. And then let's go to parenting now. Second category, parenting. Children, listen up. Children... Nathaniel, Ezra, Isaiah, Zoe, Ari, Will. Thanks for being here, Will. Annie Lou. And you too, Josiah, yes. But you're leaving. What? Just for you. <laughs> Obey your parents. Don't forget. Oh, you're going to take him out as God's about to address. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> Teach him later. All right. Children, obey your parents in everything. Obey your parents in everything. Obey your parents in everything, it says, for this pleases the Lord. This is why we address kids in our gatherings, right? Because the Bible does. And this was a public letter that was read to the whole church. Children, obey your parents. So obey, we say in our church, we say in our home, obey right away, all the way with a happy heart in God. Obey right away, all the way with a happy heart. Why? For this pleases the Lord. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to please Jesus? I have good news for you, kids. When you please Jesus, that is your greatest pleasure. Jesus is not grumpy and cranky and just wants you to please him as, a, as, a, as, a, as someone who's a bully who just wants to use you. Jesus is happy in your truest happiness. It's your greatest joy and it's for your greatest good if you would obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Jesus is your Lord. He's your creator. He's your, he holds you up. He's the only savior for you. Now it says, children, obey your parents in everything. Does that mean everything? Is there a time that children, you should not obey your parents? Children, I'm asking the children. Children, is there a time? Yes? Okay. What? Children, answer me, children. Kids, answer me. When should you not obey your parents? Any of you kids? 
Never, that's a good guess. It's wrong, nephew, but it's a good guess. <laughs> Representative Tobias, really well, good. Um, Addy, what's that? Yes, when your parents are telling you to sin, when they're being sinful. Actually, when they're, telling, when they're telling you to sin. They might even be sinfully angry, but they tell you something that's not a sin, you should still obey that. Um, but yeah, but when your parents are telling you to sin, why should you obey your parents? Because it pleases who? The Lord. the Lord. And when your parents tell you to do something that doesn't please the Lord, you should not obey your parents. Because your ultimate goal is to please, not your parents, but please who? The Lord, the Lord Jesus. So children... Obey your parents in everything so that you can please the Lord Jesus. Josiah, obey your parents in everything so you can please the Lord Jesus. There it is, in summary form. Your dad will explain and your mom. Okay. There is a time to clearly disobey your parents. Even Jesus said this. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus said, I came to bring division between father and son. Children, follow Jesus in obeying your parents. But love Jesus more than you love your parents. This prepares you to obey the Lord as an adult. And I want to say to you kids, a lot of you kids, I think all of you kids to many degree, in many ways, you kids are doing well. Even today, look at you kids. You guys are sitting here. You're quiet. You're trying to listen to a long sermon after a long gathering. Kids, you're doing a great job. Thank you, kids. Thank you for doing that and listening. You guys are doing well. And when you fail to do well, you can go to God. You can go to the Lord Jesus and ask God for forgiveness, and he will forgive your sins because Jesus died for your sins. Now, there's a command here for fathers now. Let's go to fathers. Fathers, what does it say? Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they don't become discouraged. So what is it saying for you fathers and mothers as well, but fathers as the head of the home, but certainly applies to mothers as well. Don't provoke your children to anger. How can you provoke your children to anger? How do you exasperate your children? Here's how, parents. When you're inconsistent, when you neglect your children, when you are arrogantly unrepentant, when you know you're wrong and they know you're wrong and you won't admit that you're wrong, when you're hypocritical, when you say one thing and do another, when you are impatient with your kids, when you are overly criticizing them, and you're only criticizing them, and there's always things that they can improve on. If you want to not exasperate your children so that they're not discouraged, but encourage your children, then explain things to them in age-appropriate ways. I would not explain anything to a three-year-old almost. I would tell my kids often I do not negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> Um, when they're demanding something as a three-year-old, you don't get it. Just listen to what I'm saying. But with my 13-year-old, with a 14-year-old, with a 16-year-old, that doesn't work anymore. I can't say I don't negotiate with terrorists. I actually have to explain things to them so that I don't exasperate them. And so in age-appropriate ways, in age-appropriate ways, explain things to them. Be honest with them. Admit your mistakes and sins and repent and pray with them and confess your sins to them and to God with them and encourage them and commend them. Tell them where they're doing well. Encourage them. Cheer for them. Be their biggest cheerleader, their biggest supporter. Enjoy them. They're only in your home for a short time. Blink and they're gone. The days are long, but the years are short. Enjoy your children. Don't be too hard to please as a parent. Be easy to please. 
If the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, then you would understand that children are a blessing. They are to be discipled. They are to be sent out as disciples themselves. They are called to live for Christ the King. And you have the privilege and opportunity to lead your children, provide for your children, and protect your children, and disciple your children until they are ready to be fruitful and multiply themselves. And why do you do all of this? Verse um, 21. So that they don't become what? So that they don't become discouraged. The impact and measure of the, your influence in your children's lives is connected to the amount of encouragement or discouragement you leave them with. Be an encouraging parent. Parents, many of you are doing well. Just like the children are doing well, you guys are doing well. Praise God. Keep going. But have you failed as a parent? Are you discouraged sometimes as a parent? I think one of the things that can make me cry most easily is thinking back to some of my failures as a parent in hurting my kids. The shame, the guilt, the evil, the pride, it's embarrassing. If you're discouraged as a parent, just know this about Christ the Lord. He does not exasperate you. He does not provoke you to anger. He is not impatient with you. He's not overly critical of you. He will rebuke you, but his disposition is not criticism. Christ is patient with you. He loves you. He will gently and patiently lead you and grow you and move you along as a parent. So continue to walk in Christ. Church family, let's encourage and support children and parents in this church. BBC family, you guys do a great job. Am I my glove? Test, testing, testing. Oh, it's my batteries that went out here. The batteries are out. I will grab this mic. Test, test. Okay, good. BBC family, you guys do a great job at building relationships with our kids. And I want to commend you for that. You do a good job. It takes a village to raise children. And uh, my children, I'm speaking for you kids, just, you can just nod no if I'm wrong, okay? I think this is true. My kids love you guys. They love the church family. They love you as family. And you uh, make parenting a joy for me and Francis in this church. And I want to just commend you and encourage you to keep doing that with all the children in this church. I mean, I see different people carrying babies that are not their own, right? And people who shouldn't be having babies right now, at this moment, right? Who are carrying babies like, what? Okay, that's not theirs. Good. Um, yeah. You guys build relationships. You, you invest in children. That's great. That's good. Thank you. Keep doing that. Um, church family, keep encouraging the parents. Walk alongside them. Be a shoulder to cry on. Um, help them. Let them confess their sin to you. And don't look down on them. If you become a parent, you will understand the difficulty of parenting one. And if you don't, that's okay. Just understand it is hard. And just be uh, encouraging to them. If you're not a Christian, you can come to Jesus Christ for power and guidance to parent well. You can do that. I'm going to close now and pick this up next week because I do want to talk about slavery a little bit more than I had planned for. Then I even have here in my notes. So I just talked about our failure. I think about my failure as a dad and... Um, we don't submit, wives, right? We, we don't submit to authority with joy all the time. 
We don't obey our parents well and honor them well. We don't revere God and do this in the fear of the Lord. Um, we don't submit under authority. We don't use our authority well all the time. And for these things, we deserve to be cut off from the Lord. It says here, look at verse, look at Colossians 3, verse um, 24. When you're submitting well, it says, knowing that you'll receive a reward from, of, in, of an inheritance from the Lord. When you do these things well, we do it because we will receive an inheritance from the Lord. But we don't deserve this inheritance, right? And we don't deserve salvation, Christ to come down, a new body, new heavens and new earth where you reign with Christ forever. We don't deserve that. We deserve hell. We deserve to be thrown in the lake of fire for a lack of submission, for a lack of love, for a lack of obedience, for our exasperating and discouraging those around us. But there was someone who submitted perfectly to the Father. Christ did, right? There's someone who obeyed the Father in everything. Jesus did. There's someone who used his authority to serve. There's someone who never exasperated those he had authority over. Never was overly discouraging or finally discouraging to them. And that is Jesus. Yet instead of enjoying the reward of his inheritance and glory and honor, he was dishonored. He was disgraced. He was mocked. He was shamed. He was tortured. He was hung up on a cross. He was crucified. And he was not only judged by men, Romans and Jews and everyone there, he was judged even by God. Cut off from the land of the living. Dying in our place for our sins. This is the word of Christ. This is the Christ who lived the way we should have lived. And this Christ rose from the dead, and you are united not only in his death, but in that resurrection power. So Christ gives you power, children. Children, Jesus can give you power to obey your parents as you trust in Jesus. Christ gives you power, parents, to be patient with your children, to encourage them, and to grow. I want to grow in encouraging my kids. Christ gives you power, wives, to submit to and strengthen and support your husband's leadership to challenge your leadership in all the godly ways you should. And Christ gives you power, husbands, to love your wives and sacrifice your preferences for their ultimate good and joy. This is the word of Christ dwelling in us. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is good. Jesus died and rose. Jesus overcame the grave. This word dwells in us by the Spirit, and it empowers us to move on. And really the summary of all of this, and we're going to get to this next time I preach. I think I'm not, I'm not preaching next week. John is preaching next week. In two weeks when I preach, or in three weeks when I preach. The point of this is that all of life is worship. Every moment at home is worship. Every moment with your parents and children is worship. Every moment at work is worship. It's not just Sundays. All of our lives, the full life in Christ is enjoying and communing with Christ all the time. Every day in, in whatever we're engaged in. And Christ has empowered us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for giving us Christ. We thank you that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, overcoming sin and Satan and death, to give us power to encourage each other in this church, to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us, to love our wives as husbands, to submit to our husbands as wives to obey our parents as children and to not exasperate or discourage our children as parents.
Thank you for this word. Grow us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take now the next um, three or five minutes to share.